Wow. Thank you, worship team. I want to just start by saying that, you know, and I, I say this all the time because I mean it, it is an honor uh, to preach God's word, and I do not take it lightly. And so it's important to me that you know that. Um, I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles with me back to John chapter 6. We will finish out the chapter now as we get ready to talk about obstacles to true discipleship. So if you are able, if you would stand with me in reading uh, God's word, in honor of reading his word, I'm going to read through uh, verse 660 through 71, 60 through 71. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend from where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Verse 67, Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the twelve. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's pray. Father God, I love you. I thank you, Father, for this, for this day, Father, for this opportunity, Father, for this privilege. Father, I, I just pray, God, that uh, you will just go before me now. Father God, that uh, your word will be clear, uh, your truth will be proclaimed, uh, Hearts will be convicted. Hearts will be changed. And Father, you will receive the glory. It's in the precious name of Christ, I pray. You may be seated. Now, there are typically three different types of disciples that we see in the Gospels. The casual disciple. This is the, the people who listen uh, to Jesus' teachings and they want to see the miracles. Uh, but there is really no true dedication or commitment to him. They are simply there because that's where the crowds are. A second type of disciple we see is the convinced disciple. This is the person who believes, but, well, there's a but. They put something in front of their commitment to Christ. And then, of course, we see the committed disciple. And this is the people who who have surrendered their lives to Christ to follow him in obedience and faith. In this passage, we're going to see 
two of those types. We're going to see the casual disciple and we're going to see the committed disciple. <clears throat> but most of this story uh, is, is, is about the, the casual disciple. And what we see here is that they're being confronted with Jesus proclaiming truth. Have you ever seen that movie, um, A Few Good Men? What is the infamous line from that movie? You can't handle the truth. And, and, and that's what we see unfold in this story. If you really study these verses, 22 through 71, it is obvious that Christians can get hung up in the same type of obstacles as those who do not know Christ. And so, I want us to look at the responses from this crowd and identify those obstacles. So, the main idea of this passage or this sermon is this. False disciples of Christ appear true for a while but are eventually sidelined by one or more of the enemy's obstacles. True disciples trust in Jesus and by faith persevere to the end. All of chapter 6 is a constant flow of chronological events. So I want to give you a quick summary of what has taken place leading up to verse 26. Now, I know we've read the whole chapter, but I want to bring you to this place in your mind to where just before um, the dialogue between this crowd and Jesus starts. So chapter 6, of course, begins with the feeding of the 5,000. You know the story. Jesus took five loaves and, and two fish, and he fed 5,000 men, plus all the women and children that were there. And in addition to that, there was 12 baskets full of leftovers. And, of course, this astonished the crowd. And they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. Of course, they did not realize that Jesus did not come to be Israel's warrior king to defeat Rome. He came to defeat death for the sake of mankind and for the glory of the Father. So Jesus departed from there and he went to the mountain to be alone. Meanwhile, his disciples get into a boat to cross over to Capernaum, a storm brews up and they, and they struggle for hours and, and make very little headway. Then we see here in, in three verses, two miracles occur. Jesus walks on the water, verse 19. And then when Jesus gets into the boat, it says that immediately they were upon the land to which they were going. Verse 21. So the crowd saw the disciples get into the only boat that was around and that Jesus wasn't with them. The following day, Jesus was nowhere to be found. And when some other boats show up from Tiberias, the crowd gets into the boats and they head over across to Capernaum. And when they arrive, they seek Jesus and they find him and they ask him this question. When did you arrive here? But Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, Jesus calls them out for the real reason to which they were seeking him. Verse 26, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So the first response we see reveals that they were seeking Jesus, 
but they seek him with a wrong motive and a wrong belief. We know their motive was wrong because Jesus just calls them out for it in verse 26. You see, their, their perception and reverence of Jesus rapidly declined. In the beginning of the chapter, we see the crowd following Jesus because of the signs and miracles that he was doing. But then in verse, we, we see this in verse 2 of chapter 6. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Jesus does this incredible, miraculous uh, you know, miracle of feeding the 5,000. And the very next day, he said, you're not here for the miracles. You just want your stomachs to be filled again. It had come to the point where these people didn't really care who Jesus was, what he was saying, or what he was proclaiming. They were simply there to have their temporary need met. This same concept is, 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 is very evident today in our society. You see churches all across this country with thousands and thousands of followers who want to get their ears tickled by this prosperity gospel. Their motives are no different than that of this crowd. It is self-centered, driven. It's usually easy to see the motives of those who don't really know Jesus. But what about those of us who do know him? Do our motives get a little sideways sometimes? Do we seek Jesus for the wrong reasons? Do we seek him sometimes just to fix our problems the way we want them fixed and according to our schedule, which is always now, by the way? It's easy to fall into these kind of bad seeking habits. When hardships come, we should seek him. But we should seek him with his sovereignty in the forefront of our minds and our prayers. We seek him while leaning on his promises and taking him at his word. We seek him believing that he only wants what is best for us. And we seek him considering that maybe those hardships are part of our sanctification. The molding and the shaping us. There is a wonderful passage of comfort and encouragement in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Let me read that for you. Uh, verse 28, and we know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we usually stop right there. And in doing so, we can mistakenly think that the good he was referring to is our own personal comfort or peace. Or resolve. We must keep reading if we want to understand what the good is that he is referring to. So let me read verses 28 and 29 together for you. And we know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To become conformed to the image of his son. All things work together for good is all things working together to conform us to the image of Jesus. That is the good. God will use the hardships, the hurt, the grief, the circumstances to mold and to shape us. So seek him for peace. Seek him for comfort. Seek him for resolve. But do so with the desire to become more like God. Christ, no matter the cost. 
in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 6, we see their wrong belief. Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus pointed out that there's two types of of food. Food for the body and food for the inner man, the spirit. And just as important as, as food for the body is, food for the spirit is more. It is essential. Food for the body sustains life. Jesus provides everlasting life. Verse 29 is obviously a response from the religious leaders because they are steeped in legalistic legalistic religion. Look, they picked up on the word work and misinterpreted it to mean that they were to work for salvation. But they completely missed the word give, which is an act of grace. Jesus made it clear that the only work was necessary was to believe in the Savior. I think it's hard for man to to grasp the concept of grace. There is this natural tendency to think that we must earn salvation. If there was something man could add to the work of salvation, then we cheapen the blood of Christ. I can't imagine having to, to live a life where my salvation depended on me in any way, shape, or form. That is a frightening and horrible concept. Once a person comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior, we we understand the concept of his glorious grace, but I, I still think we have a hard time grasping its depth. Belief, repentance, and faith in Christ bring a forgiveness that is deeper than, than what our finite minds can comprehend. Just because we can't understand it, it doesn't mean we shouldn't believe because God's ways are higher than man's. Now notice that after Jesus says they must believe in verse 29, they immediately won't prove, verse 30. And that is our second re- response that we see. They test God. So far, we've seen that this crowd was seeking Jesus for the wrong motive and the wrong belief system. And now, because they won't prove, they test God. Remember, they weren't seeking Jesus because of signs, but when they are faced with truth and they are called to believe, now they want a sign. But not just any sign. They want a very specific sign. And there's a reason for that. They state, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The reason they mention the the manna is because Jewish rabbis at that time taught that when the Messiah came, he would duplicate the miracle of the manna. So they are saying, "If if you are who you claim to, then prove it by making manna fall from heaven. They test God. But Jesus isn't having it. Why? Well, first, we are commanded not to test God. And second, because faith based on signs alone and not the truth of the word can lead a person to stray. We see in 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that even Satan can perform lying wonders. Jesus sought to make sure they had a deeper understanding of the truth and said, it wasn't Moses who gave them the bread from heaven, the manna, but God. He wants to take their focus off of Moses and put it on God because the Father is now giving them the true bread from heaven. Then Jesus goes on to clearly identify that he is the bread from heaven. Seven times in this sermon, Jesus referred to his coming down from heaven. A statement that declared him to be God. So even if, if you've been uh, coming on Wednesday night, then you, then you probably have an understanding of the typology in the Bible. The Old Testament manna was but a type of the true bread, the Lord Jesus. He came not to just sustain life, but he came to give life. And he didn't come just for Israel. He came for the whole world. So they test God, but Jesus doesn't perform for them. However, the Jews make this connection between the bread from heaven and everlasting life. And so they perceive this to be something that would be beneficial to them, of course. And so now they want it. And this is the third response. They want the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want the lordship of Jesus. In verse 37 through 40, Jesus explains the process of salvation. Uh, this, uh, these are among the most profound words he ever spoke. But we cannot fully understand their depth. He explained that salvation involves both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Father gives men and women to the Son, but they must believe in him. And he assured them that he will not turn away anyone that the Father gives to him. You see, because we are finite beings, we cannot see how divine, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. But from God's perspective, there is no conflict. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled these two. <laughs> Spurgeon replied, I never tried to reconcile friends. And that's about as far out on this limb that I'm, I'm going to go. <laughs> In verse 38, Jesus clearly states he has come down from heaven. And so the complaining and the murmuring begins. They want everlasting life, but they refuse to believe Jesus is who he says he is. They wanted to see something, but really what they needed was to learn something. Jesus then starts to use this symbolic language of eating his flesh. And this is where things really start to go south with this crowd. Unfortunately, they got hung up in this graphic nature of, of the illustration that Jesus uses. After Jesus said in verse 51, if, if anyone eats of this bread, the bread that I shall give is my flesh, the disciples' response was, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, this is crazy talk. Now, you would think that Jesus might change the language a bit, soften it up a little, but he doesn't. In fact, he doubles down on the crazy. You could say he triples down on it because 
he uses the term eat my flesh and or drink my blood three more times verses 53 54 and 56 what exactly was the message that they could not understand one commentator put it like this bread was the basic food of the ancients it is symbolic of all that sustains life here on earth as bread from heaven, Jesus is affirming that he is essential to provide and sustain spiritual life. The concept of eating Christ's flesh is symbolic too. Material bread must be eaten and digested. It must become part of us. In the same way, all that Christ is must become part of us. We must appropriate him by faith, take him in completely that he might become a part of us and sustain us. After this, the crowd complained even more and proclaimed, this is, hard, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And so we come to the fourth response. They reject Jesus' words and therefore reject Jesus. Because they, the food, uh, because they found Jesus uh, too difficult to understand, they reject his words and therefore reject him. This is the reason a soul will spend eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. Because it is by the word that God is revealed and it is by the word that we receive the faith to come to Christ and to trust in him. There are a lot of difficult sayings in the scriptures and some are hard to come to terms with. Do you know why they're hard to come to terms with? Because we desperately want our terms. But God requires that we come to the scriptures on his terms. Look, you either believe the Bible is infallible, inerrant word of God, or not only will you not understand it, but you also don't get God. We don't get to pick and choose truth. It's all truth. Every single word of it is truth. Our, our job is to know it, to study it, to bury it in our hearts and our minds so that when someone comes and they, they misuse it or they misinterpret it, we'll know and we won't be led astray by false doctrine. The crowd did not understand that Jesus was speaking spiritually and not physically or literally, even though Jesus was very clear in his message. Four times, four times he equates believing in him with eternal life. And he was very clear in verse 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The Lord's teaching was not hard to understand, but hard to obey because they were spiritually dead. And so all the dialogue that took place between verses 22 and 65 led to the decision revealed in verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Warren Wearsby in his commentary said, Jesus lost most of his followers with one sermon. They turned back to the old life, the old religion, the old hopeless situation. They had the opportunity to be made new, but they rejected the one who could give new life. 
So we have the responses from the crowd. They seek Jesus with wrong motive and beliefs. They test God for proof. They want the benefits of Jesus, but not the lordship of Jesus. And they reject his truth. Therefore, they reject him. And now we come to verse 67. The crowd has turned away. And Jesus says to the 12, do you also want to go away? Now, why would Jesus ask his closest disciples if they wanted to leave him? Jesus already knew what would happen. So we have to conclude that it wasn't Jesus who needed to hear the response, but it was the disciples who needed to, to address the question in their own hearts. Here's another thing we need to, to see. And I realize that Peter often was the spokesperson for the 12, but none of the other disciples said a word. Now we know Judas was, well, Judas, but it is, is it possible that some of the other 10 disciples did not believe? Absolutely. In the very next chapter, we see that Jesus' own brothers did not believe he was the son of God. So do you think that maybe there was this temptation to walk away? Several years ago, I found myself in what I will describe as a low place in my Christian walk. There were a lot of personal issues going on and during that time, I found myself struggling with my Christian faith. It was a time when the sovereignty of God implied such things that made me consider walking away from the Christian faith. That's important to understand. Let me read it again. There is a, a time when the sovereignty of God implied such things that made me consider walking away from the Christian faith. I just want to say that if you've always found it easy to believe in God's sovereignty in all things, count your blessings. Because there are many who go through a season struggling with that. And it is agonizing. And even though that God may discipline us in those times, he does so with a loving hand. We do serve a merciful and loving God. Amen. And in his mercy, God brought me to John chapter 6. Verses 67 and 69 through 69. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's response really made me think about the absurdity of walking away. Because here's the reality of it, okay? If you're walking away from something, it only means you are walking towards something else. 
It calls me to look deep inside myself and, and really address the question, to whom will I turn? Where will I go? But you see, the truth is, I wasn't really going anywhere because I'm his. Sure, I could have, I could have wandered for weeks or months or perhaps even years, but God would not truly let me go. How do I know this? Because I had come to believe and to know that Christ Jesus is the Son of God. Because his spirit testifies with my spirit. Because his word convicts me and it encourages me and it gives me hope. And through it, I have come to know God more intimately. And because Jesus said, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing. But raise, but should raise it up on the last day. I am eternally his, and he is eternally mine. But we are a broken people living in a broken world. And as Paul said, we are in a fight. And though we may at times lose the battle, my friends, the war has already been won. When Pastor Cody asked me to to stand in and preach while he was away. He asked me if I wanted to, to stay in 2 Samuel and preach from there. And I immediately said no. Well, wait. <laughs> because I knew I had to preach these verses. It's painful. It's hard to share that experience. But I share it because I know God laid it on my heart to do so. And all I can figure from that is that someone is walking through that same type of season that I did. Or somebody is going to be. And so I want to encourage you to ask yourself what Peter asked. To whom shall I go? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is always the answer. No one, has, no one else has the words of eternal life. And no one has the power the compassion, the mercy, the grace to hold you and sustain you. And my friends, no one can ever love you the way he loves you. So whether I'm on a mountaintop or whether I'm in a valley, I often turn to this verse because it is a great reminder that I have all I will ever need in this life and the next. And I have it all in Jesus.
Let's pray. Father God, again, I, I come to you humble, just thanking you, Father God, that you have such great compassion for us and great grace for us. And Father, such a love that we can't even comprehend the depth of it. And Father, it is my prayer, God, that if anyone is struggling in their Christian walk, Father God, that they will not let obstacles get in the way. That these words will speak true to their heart. They will be branded into their minds that, God, only you have the words of eternal life. Only Jesus is the answer. So, Father, I pray, God, that we will look deep into our hearts and see how we respond to the question, to whom will you turn? Father, I pray, God, that you are glorified through this sermon and through the people's response. It's in the precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen.